0: Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the BuckoCast, brought to you by the Pittsburgh Fan. Located just across the street from PNC Park, the Pittsburgh Fan always has the best and most interesting gear to show your affinity for your Pittsburgh teams. Penguins fans, let me be the first to welcome you to baseball season. And right now, you can stop in and shake off the blues of a first-round exit by gearing up at the Pittsburgh Fan right across the street from PNC Park. You can use promo code BUCKOCAST for 15% off your order in-store or online at thepittsburghfan.com. And also check him out on Twitter, at ThePittFan. This is Jason Rolson back with you on the BuckleCast. Thank you for coming back and joining us. I really appreciate it. Going to talk to Eno Saris of The Athletic in a little bit. Very excited about that. Eno Saris is one of the best analytical minds writing about baseball today, in my humble opinion. Always writes interesting stuff, always comes at it from very unique angles. Right now working his trade at The Athletic, which you've seen him at Fangraphs, quite a few other places, MLB Network here and there. So I'm very excited to talk to him. He has a new podcast called Rates and Barrels on The Athletic, which comes at things from a fantasy baseball perspective. But what I've often found, especially in the past year or so, is that talking about baseball from a fantasy perspective really opens your eyes to some of what's going on from a non-fantasy perspective. So this all works together. I'm very excited to talk to him. So we're actually going to have that segment first. Uh, here it is coming up. And right after, we'll come back and talk a little more Pirates and also your Texts and calls on the Up and Running hotline. But for now, here's Eno. Alright guys, it's Jason back on the BuckleCast with you and I'm very happy to bring in a guest I've been looking forward to talking to for quite some time. Uh, Chances are, if you've read baseball analysis online over the past few years, you've seen his work. His name is Eno Saris. He writes currently for The Athletic and also just started a podcast under The Athletic's banner, getting back into podcasting with... Rates and Barrels with his partner, Derek Van Riper. So, Eno, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, uh, Rates and Barrels, uh, let's talk about that for a second because you're getting back into podcasting with a fantasy podcast. And uh, uh, how's it going so far? And did you really uh, miss doing that?
1: I did miss doing it. It gives me ideas for other kinds of writing I could do, it brings up. Uh, old topics. It sort of wraps together old things I've written about and new things I'm writing about. It allows me to kind of be off the cuff a little bit. It allows me sometimes to tell stories I can't really tell in print. So it is something that I uh, enjoy doing.
0: And you know, the, as if you didn't get enough value for your subscription with the athletic, who's in my opinion, collected probably the best group of baseball writers around. You'll also win your league. So no matter what format you're in, I would suggest you, <laughs> you, you listen to these guys. And, um, you know, one quick thing about that is that I've noticed in the past few years, especially some of the best analysis has come from, you know, fantasy guys. I think of yourself. I think of uh, Alex Fast, the pitching, li- pitching uh, pitcher list, excuse me, just came out with a very nice, interesting statistic called CSW the other day. So why do you think that is? Why do you think that the fantasy community has kind of really put forth some fantastic ideas over the past few years?
1: I think it's a couple things. I mean, for one, they've got skin in the game. <laughs> yeah. They they often want to win their leagues for money. In fact, Fangraphs was started because David Appleman, the founder of Fangraphs, wanted to win his fantasy league. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a little known fact. But uh, you know, the, what uh, they they've got skin in the game. They want to, they want to win their game. They're motivated to learn the most about the team, and then they're often nerds. I mean, they're often you know people that will deep dive and try to figure something out. So I think that is a good combination, and and there and increasingly, fantasy leagues require a knowledge. You know, with Dynasty and Keeper leagues, require the knowledge of the development of a player from the beginning to the end. So uh, it requires knowledge of aging curves, of prospects, of development, of like which which facets of a minor of leaguers production are more believable than others and things like that. So I think that that combination of skin in the game and nerdiness really puts, uh, puts a point. And it's not, it's not something that's super recent. there are other people who've made the jump from fantasy to the, to the big leagues. Even, um, one of the, one of the people that helped found Autonew uh, now works for the pirates.
0: Uh-huh. That's right.
1: Um, and uh and auto new is the is the fantasy game on fangraphs the dynasty fantasy game so you know i just saw him in 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 uh in arizona it was good to see him so you know this is uh uh yeah it's a, a thing that happens i you know it's uh it's people that are concerned with the numbers people that want to deep dive and want to figure figure baseball out as much as they can
0: yeah i mean you're gonna look at the numbers anyway might as well you know make a profit off of it i i I told get what you're saying. <laughs> so, you know, from a from a fantasy, from a fantasy perspective, I think every fantasy owner has got at least a at least you know has looked at getting a couple pirate starters on their on their squad. But if you had to buy into just one of the pirate starters right now, which one are you buying into from a fantasy perspective?
1: It's interesting. I mean, I like them all, and they're all off to great starts. I think that I often consider. Fantasy value in comparison to price, so you know I, I don't, you know, in terms of who I think is the best starter, I think it's Jameson Tion. But once you throw price in there and, and how much someone's, how much you're gonna have to give up to get them, and so on, I kind of like Jordan Lyles. You know, he's available in a lot of leagues, and even if he's not available, I don't think his owner is totally in love with them because he just probably got him off a of waiver wire. And the things that I like about Lyles are the new curveball that he discovered last year in Milwaukee is still there. He's still got the change up. And with his three-pitch mix, I really do think he's going to outpace his projections. Uh, the projections don't really know that he's had a change in, in pitcher type and pitch mix. And those are, those are two ways that a pitcher can become a different person uh, or a different person in the numbers, really.
0: Yeah, you know, with Lyles in particular, I was kind of on the fence with him, but then uh, that start against the Cubs, of course, uh, 10 strikeouts in six innings from a fantasy perspective is going to make you stand up and take notice, but what I liked about it was you know, he trusted his secondary pitches. He had an a bat to, I think, Rizzo early in the game. Didn't throw one fastball. Went like, uh, I think, change, curve, 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 change. And when you have a plus pitch like that and you're trusting your other pitches, I think that's a pretty good foundation, no?
1: Yeah, for sure, and this is, you know, going to come back up again a couple of times, I think, when we when we talk about these pitchers. But for one thing that, you know, that he does that some of the other starters don't do as much is, um, you know, trust it, is go to his secondaries. I mean, he, he, let me make sure that Musgrove actually uh, throws uh, his fastball less. But other than that, um, the other guys, uh, for the most part, throw the fastball a little bit more. So, um, yeah, I think that's uh, that's going to be good for him. In today's league, uh, I think it's more more important than ever to be able to command your secondary pitches.
0: Yeah, speaking of secondary pitches, Chris Archer is now in his first full season with the Pirates. Uh, everybody kind of knows the story. He had been more or less a two-pitch pitcher with spotting a few other stuff as a few other pitches as well. But this year, he's kind of and this actually started late last year. but He's bringing back the sinker a little bit. What was your reaction when you when you saw or heard that? And did you cringe at a uh, here we go again, the Pirates making someone throw a sinker, or did you think that it might unlock something for him?
1: I think it's a really fascinating uh, thing that's happened here, and I don't know that I know 100% um, the answer, but I would say that th- I'm of two minds. So one mind is uh, every pitch that you add is good. Uh, Mitchell Lichtman, MGL, he he found that every time you add a pitch, every pitch that you own, every additional pitch that you throw more than ten percent of the time, softens your third time through the order penalty. And that makes sense because you've got to turn over this lineup, you've got to show different things to these batters and just having another pitch gives you another wrinkle, another thing that you could throw, and they can't really isolate you and say, Oh, fastball slider. I'm going to sit slider in a second at bat. I know what he did to me last time. So, um, in this case, you know, every pitch, every additional pitch is good. So Archer comes over mostly fastball, mostly forcing slider when he comes over and, uh, adding the sinker seems like, uh, an interesting idea, um, uh, to, to, for him. However, the main problem with Archer, for me, is that the, he can only really command his force hmm And that, I think that's still true of all of his pitches. So, um, you know, the reason when he got in trouble in the past, um, he got in trouble for, um, you know, getting behind the count and then having to throw his forcing to get back into the count. Or going to the slider and, and, uh, and maybe hanging one, you know, in the zone. So, um, you know, in this case, uh, and I see that even though he has brought the sinker back, uh, by Brooks baseball, he's only found six this year. Hmm. So, um, I think that's partially uh, part of the reason is that he can't command it that well. And he kind of needs to use the fastball to, uh, for command. So the, the biggest thing for me for Archer every year is slider command. If he can use the slider uh, for strikes, then he's unhittable.
0: Talking with Eno Saris of The Athletic and of the new Rates and Barrels podcast. So we, you mentioned Musgrove a little bit ago, and I watched his start last night. He uh, battled through one bad inning, but overall had a pretty good start. Uh, one thing I noticed that he's not afraid to throw same side a same-sided changeup. And I've noticed around the league, I looked at some data today, and it's on a slight uptick in terms of even if I just uh, – just a subset of pictures, say right-handers on right-handed batters. I see some more same-sided change-ups and I'm wondering, is there a trend starting where, you know, the old tradition of "oh, you don't do that, you don't throw a, cha- a same-sided change-up, is that starting to die away in your opinion?
1: Yeah, I think so. I, I think this is not only a this year trend, this is a year over year over year trend because I wrote maybe two or three years ago on Fangraphs mm-hmm. that this was happening. And uh, it's known colloquially Within baseball as girl on girl. Uh, I don't, I don't throw that one out there too often because it, it's a little bit weird, but uh, the idea is just that it's not something that you, you normally throw, but that it's getting, it's getting popular enough to have a nickname. And I think that the the main idea is the same thing kind of with the adding pitches and, and owning them is that you don't want to eliminate any possibilities in the hitters mind. Mm-hmm. You want you wanna you want them to be worried about every single pitch. If you go up there and you're right and you have a change up and the righty says, Ah, you know what, I'm gonna eliminate that changeup, I'm gonna eliminate that cutter, and so now I'm really just looking fastball slider, and if he throws the curve, I'm just gonna not swing. You know, that's that that could be an approach against Musgrove if he never threw the change in the cutter same handed. So by throwing that change in the cutter in there they might see fastball on the cutter and swing through it, or they might see fastball on the change and swing through it because they're really they're really thinking fastball slider.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it,
1: to, the one thing the on. one thing I would say is that there's some teams that 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 just basically almost ban uh, pitchers from throwing sliders to opposite hand hitters, and uh, you know that's because platoons would say you should never do that. At the same time, if you're in the side of a pitcher's head, they're like, no, I can back foot a breaking ball. As long as I don't get that really in the zone and I do it below the zone and I throw that, if I throw as a right-hander, throw my breaking ball, you know, to the very back foot of the, left hand, left, of the, left, of the lefty batter, that allows me to uh, throw my slider. And it gives me a chance to, once again, not eliminate a pitch. And, and you know what? A changeup up the same hand is risky, which is why I didn't do it in the past. It's the same reason that if I, as a righty, throw a slider to a lefty and I don't get it back foot, then it's in the, like, lower, the low and in quadrant of the strike zone, which lefties in the past have really battered. Mm-hmm. They just sort of drop that bat head on it and take a yard. That's the risk there. So it's a risky pitch in some ways, but having it in there is meaningful. When you throw a right-on-right right change, you're kind of throwing it Towards the middle of the zone or towards that low and in part of the zone to righties and hoping that it uh, darts their back foot in a similar way. And if it doesn't quite have the break that you anticipated or you miss your aim a little bit and it just uh, stays within the zone, it can become a hittable pitch.
0: I agree with everything you just said. It sounds perfect to me. But also, you know, maybe it's as simple as if you have a good changeup, why aren't you using it, right? I mean, sometimes it's Yeah. (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah, and uh, I wrote a whole pitch, a a love story to this this pitcher for uh, San Diego, Chris Paddock. He throws a a right-handed changeup, and he throws it front door to lefties. So he mm -hmm. throws his changeup at the lefties, basically at their hands, and then it comes over high in the zone. It's something I've never seen anyone do before. Uh, maybe Zach Greinke does it sometimes. And uh, and that has totally put batters on their heels because if, you, if they swing at it, it's usually bad contact, and if they take it, it's a strike.
0: That's pretty ballsy. I'll, I'll agree. So <laughs> we're sitting here talking about secondary pitches, using a changeup if you have one. Uh, and everybody knows the the kind of narrative over the past few years, that fastballs are slowly uh, being reduced. But, you know, Felipe Vasquez, the great reliever for the Pirates, actually had a very good quote the other day, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. He said, I'm going to throw Vada my fastball. It's my best pitch, so I'm going to throw it. Uh, fastball, fastball, fastball. That's why I told Cervelli I'm going to throw. So we've been hearing for, like I said, for a few years now that less fastballs is an inevitable trend, assumingly. But yet for relievers, mm-hmm. I've noticed that it stayed – I don't want to say static over the last few years, just in terms of raw numbers, but the fluctuations are very minimal. I would say, uh, I looked at it yesterday, I, it was something like less than 1.5% you know, year to year. So why is this with relievers? Is this just something as simple as saying, you know, yes, fastballs are, are not thrown as much by starters now, so when you get late in the game, you want to give the hitter something else to look mm. at? Or what, what's your take there?
1: That's an interesting idea. I, there is a sort of uh, push and pull with fastball starter mixes that people don't talk about very much. I asked Chris Stratton, who has this great curveball, he's now with the Angels, when he was at the Giants, I asked him, you know, know, why don't you throw your curveball like all the time? It's a great curveball. And he said, if I do that, then my relievers can't throw their breaking balls as much later in the game. So, uh, and I was like, I doubt that their curveballs look exactly like yours. You know, I'm not sure it works that way, but it is an interesting concept that you brought up. I, I think that it probably has something to do more along the lines of uh, velocity. So the average velocity for a reliever is now over, is like approaching 94. It's like 93.8 or something. And um, there's this interesting thing that happens with fastballs. If you're over 94 miles an hour, uh, hits per fastball and home runs per fastball take a real dive after 94. So between 90 and 94, it's, uh, it's a, uh, there is, there are incremental gains. There is an incremental gain to, to be gained from going from 90 to 91 or 91 to 92. But those are smaller gains. When you get over 93 uh, and you start going 94, 95, and once you start throwing 95, 96 on our fastballs, you actually start suppressing home runs and suppressing hits on the fastball. And so uh, with relievers, more often living in that 95, 96, 97, and plus, I mean, Felipe is a 100 mile an hour guy. Mm-hmm. Um, then they're right. They're right to throw their their fastballs, and and maybe it's the, both of these things that they're the the hitters are seeing fewer fastballs early on, and then they're seeing 100 mile an hour fastballs at the end of the game, and that's part of why there's so many strikeouts in the
0: game. <laughs> <laughs> Talking again with Eno saris from the Athletic, and just just couple more things for you before we let you go. Um, a lot of Pirates fans right now are are finding themselves in the in the grip of existential angst because Tyler Glass now is having a lot of success with Tampa Bay. Uh just any off the cuff thoughts about what might have happened there. Is it something as simple as change of scenery, change of voice? Um, or is there something else that the Pirates aren't doing?
1: You know, I, I've I've poked and, and pushed Glass now's numbers and tried to, you know, say, oh, you know, he's throwing X more less or you know they oh they just told him not to worry about his change up mm-hmm. and you know there's not really a smoking gun there I, I don't see one um you know sure maybe he, threw, he throws the change up a little bit less of the race but not really it's not like he threw the change up a ton <laughs> uh with the pirates especially before the trade yes uh he was traded he was traded mid-year last year right 2018 yep
0: Mm -hmm. that's right
1: yeah he was yeah he was not throwing the change up at all uh before the trade so uh you know is it know, i don't see they didn't they didn't add a sinker or anything like that he's thrown the, the curve a little bit more what i do think uh tampa does that the pirates I don't, I wouldn't say that they don't do, or, you know, that they, that they're against the, the Rays take him out earlier. You know, the Rays are often happy with four and a third from Tyler Yeah. Or, or, or just five, you know, like they don't. And I think that might be important because you're talking about a guy who's huge. He's tall. He's got all these levers. He's trying to, you know, repeat his command. He has command problems. What if you just say, "Hey, you know, throw the heck out of the ball." He's he's talking about they want me to like I'm trying to be athletic, uh, and he has made some small tweaks to the delivery, but those aren't tweaks that that Ray Searidge couldn't have come up with. You know, I don't think that that's impossible for Ray to figure it out. I think it's more that they're like, "Hey, just throw the heck out of the ball, throw it mostly towards the zone, and just let all of the all of the movement you've got and all the velocity." Uh, take advantage of it. Don't think too hard. Just throw what the what the catcher you know puts down. Just throw for four and a third, and maybe we'll get you to five. And we've got this excellent bullpen and this whole strategy built around you know just barely getting enough out of our starters. So you know if that's what you're going to do, do that. You know so you know I, I, that's what I think is 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 probably what's going on. Okay. Um, I I don't think it's it's much. I you know I. I do sometimes think that the pirates have. I worry that the pirates have prescriptive approaches where they think they know exactly what's going on and they kind of tell everybody to do a certain thing. And I think that maybe more uh, successful or more modern development practices in today's game have to do with either being reactive or not being so prescriptive and maybe having multiple prescriptions and saying, okay, well that didn't work. We have this other pathway that might work for you. And, uh, what I've saw in the past, the pirates, and I think it's changing a little bit was you're going to throw the four seam forever, Hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and you're going to throw that four seam until we think you have command and we're not going to even let you throw the two seam until maybe you get to the majors or you, you convince us that, um, that, you, that you can actually throw the forcing for strikes. So I think that that has maybe led to a little bit of uh, maybe lesser development of secondary pitches. Um, and sometimes you'll see, like with Tyon, he really took a huge step forward when he started throwing the, the sinker. And then he took another huge step forward when he threw a slider why wasn't he throwing a slider before? Like what? Like what? You have a curveball, your changeup stinks, and you're only now trying a slider. That to me says something negative about Pirates' development practices.
0: You're you're absolutely right. He had it when he was drafted, and he's been quoted as saying, "You know, they told me to stop throwing it when he first got into their system." So, you're absolutely right about that. And I think and like, you
1: look at Cole. I mean, mm-hmm. Cole goes away and just throws throws more uh, breaking balls and 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 has a bunch of success i i would say though i i see i was a little surprised when i opened up the pitch mix for the pirates players this year i see a lot more breaking balls and their fastball numbers are not as high as i would expect especially the starters mm-hmm. and there's more sinkers but there's not so many sinkers. you're like oh they love the sinker so I think that they uh, they probably had a meeting sometime recently <laughs> where they said, let's reevaluate all our processes and and consider each aspect of these and consider if we're doing the best thing.
0: Yeah, and I think that uh, Justin Message, uh, assistant pitching coach now, but came up with Tyon Kingham and those guys and, and kind of is now on the Major League Club and has a fresh voice and these guys are comfortable with him. And I think that's part of it too. But let me get you out on this because not only – does Eno talk a lot of baseball? He also talks a lot of beer. So we had to, we had to hit you with some beer questions before we let you go here. Um,
1: so we're not going to talk about Josh Bell?
0: <laughs> I, I had it on my sheet, but I, I love all the pitching stuff, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it to the pitchers for today. Maybe we'll have you on again to talk hitters. Why? Um,
1: well, all right. well I, I, <laughs> I definitely believe in what he's doing right now, and I, I thought coming into the season I had him tabbed as a, as a guy who could break out because I love guys to start with Hit Tool, especially if they have patience and hit tool and have shown some power in the past. So I, I'm, I'm in the tank for Josh Bell.
0: Okay, let's talk about it real quick, if you don't mind. What's the biggest impetus? Because he has his reputation as over-tinkerer, but yet his hands are quiet when he lets them be quiet and he gets it through the zone. So what's been the impetus for this year, in your, in your opinion?
1: When I first heard him say that he wanted to go back to some of his old strategies and some of his old approach, I was like, oh, my God, here come the ground balls. But, you know, I think he's been so focused on hitting fly balls that some of that must have stepped through and then add in the comfort of kind of going to what worked before. I could really see that being the sort of magic bullet. Because it's a little early to be looking at ground ball fly ball mix, but it's one of the most power, it is the most power friendly he's put up since A-ball. Uh, in terms of hitting fly balls and not hitting, and not hitting ground balls. And he's got the same good patience, the same uh, swing strike rate, uh, the same good numbers when it comes to not reaching. In fact, the best not reaching numbers of his career. Um, and uh, I, it's all systems go. I know that a lot of these numbers are not quite there, but these are the kind of numbers you should be looking at early in the season. The most important numbers early in the season are ground ball, fly ball mix, and swing metrics
0: you know and at PNC Park having the highest uh, pull rate of his career so far granted just a a couple percentage points higher than his previous high but that helps too so yeah i i, I think i'm i'm in line with you on thinking that this could be the starting point of a of a turn for him
1: so yeah yeah and and power pull pull is good for power you you like that a guy can can hit it the other way cuz that means he can do something with the pitch mm-hmm. you know if if he needs to Take the outside pitch to the other side, and, and that anybody to me that has a good batting average and good contact rates can have some oppo power or has some oppo ability, because there's almost no way to cover the entire zone without some ability to go the other way.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, just a real quick aside. I, I one of the things I've been trying to track lately with the Pirates is how some of their guys who have like a lower-rated uh, pure power to a raw power tool coming up through the minors can translate to game power. Is that something that's kind of a, I don't want to say an underrated place where teams can really develop power hitters, but should we be paying more attention to how teams are developing game power in terms of, you know, getting a pitch to hit, getting to the fastball counts, because that's kind of what Rick Eckstein and Jacob Cruz are preaching, the new pit, the new uh, hitting coaches for the Pirates. Is that something we should be paying more attention to?
1: Yeah, but there's, you know, there's, there's approach and there's mechanics. And I do think that there are cheap mechanics that sometimes, a player can fall into when they hear launch angle, lift the ball. You know, there are cheap ways to lift the ball that leave you susceptible. For example, just the old school kind of drop the back elbow and and, and yank it. Uh, that leaves you susceptible to the high fastball. So I do, in general, uh, prefer when a person gets his launch angle or gets his lift from better Pitch select better hit you know better pitch selection by by targeting high fastballs for example and and things like that so I do kind of prefer that generally uh, but at the same time I've been talking to advanced hitting people you know like a drive line Matt Lyle um, and not that there's a perfect spring for everybody but there are certain things that mechanically good players do that. That lead to bat speed. There are certain. It's almost like the kinetic chain for pitching. You know, when you throw, you you kind of want to put everything in order. There's, um, you know, the, the 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 legs, the 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 glutes, uh, you know, the the torso, the hand comes last. That sort of stuff. That's the kinetic chain. Um, in in base in in hitting, there's a similar uh, situation, and I don't know it as well. Hit the hitting side, but the. The, the, the pirates are way into these K-Vests, this wearable technology. Yep. Brian Hayes was talking about this for a piece that we did about, about the data there, and he said that they had him in, in the K-Vest. Uh, I watched Adam Brett Walker, who's this guy who has immense power but has had real command, uh, real uh, contact issues and has flamed out so far of a couple organizations. He was working at Driveline, and from they showed sort of a front-to-back, you know, here he is now we put the K vest on and here's where things are firing. Bop, bop, bop. Here's where his legs are firing. Here's where his hips are firing. Here's where his um, torso is firing. And they said, you know, this is out of whack with this. And they gave him a couple cues and then they did it again and everything looked better. So that's the kind of thing you can do with the K vest. I think Brian Hayes early numbers right now show that he's lifting the ball better. And he started with good patience and good contact ability. And if you add that lift, uh, to that, I think that's, that's sort of my favorite uh, recipe for success because I'm not sure that play, – like, play discipline can be taught in certain ways. It can be refined, I think. Um, but, um, you know, if you have bat-to-ball ability and a certain sense of the zone, I would, that's the kind of person I think I would love to work with as a hitting coach. Cabrian uh, Hayes, I think, is going to take off this year.
0: Yeah, we're all excited to see what he can do at the major league level. You know, I have a beer dilemma. I'm hoping you can help me with it. So, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm 38 now. Uh, when I was younger, I would drink a lot of beer, and it was you know run-of-the-mill beers. And occasionally, I would get you know go to the beer store and get like an interesting-looking lager or a pilsner or whatever the heck you want to call it. I'm not into the craft beer, but as I get older, I still enjoy beer, but I want to drink less of it and and make it a quality over quantity thing. Where do I start? Mm-hmm. Because it seems like there's so many choices out there that I just people recommend this one friend recommend that another friend recommend another one it's too much so if i'm a common man beer drinker if i want to get into something uh a little better a little more uh interesting where do i even start
1: yeah you know i, I don't blame you I, i've been in the yogurt aisle sometimes being like <laughs> oh my god how many different kinds of yogurt can you have Uh, and that's been one of the things that happened in the beer revolution has just been that, you know, I'm looking right now at the Pittsburgh map of, of craft beer, you know, breweries and there's a million of them. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't even, I don't even know them that well because I haven't been. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that, uh, one of the interesting things that's happening right now, um, in beer, and I think it's less important that I tell you a name of a of a brewery in your area that, because I don't know them that well, it's more important that I think you should try the style. There's a style right now called a hazy IPA or um, some call it New England style. And the reason why I think it could be an interesting uh, attempt for you is that a lot of people, when they get into craft, they, they say it's too bitter. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's a, that's a, you know, in craft one oh one uh some of those early beers weren't really bitter And uh, my favorite beers are more sort of aromatic. Um, You know, you might be able to get this beer uh, in in your fridge, especially I'm thinking more about my gut these days. So I'm trying to get like sort of around five, six percent. There's a beer called Firestone Walker Easy Jack. And that beer is just a clear, nice, easy drinking beer that has a bit of fruit, like a bit of hops fruitiness to it. It's not very bitter. um, And I love that beer. But uh, next to that, the other idea is a hazy IPA. Go to your local place and ask for a hazy IPA because uh, they're not bitter, and they're kind of have like a fruity of like a fruity aromatic uh, smell and great taste, and uh, they're they're very different. So if you've tried this in the past, this is a this is a different trend that's going on right now that I think is is worth trying out.
0: Okay, great. And I think we drew some parallels today craft beers were like the pittsburgh pirates the pirates you know over concentrate on fastballs and early ipas and early craft was bitter
1: so yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah they were too bitter remember yeah. bitter beer
0: face oh i do i, I, I said to yeah. some of my friends now like what are you talking about I'm like you're too young
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's definitely some bitter beer face uh, action on some older older school stuff but the new school stuff especially the hazy IPAs, they're not so they're not so bitter
0: all right, give me a starting point, and for that, I thank you. And thanks for your time as well, Eno. You know, I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, thanks once again to Eno Saris of The Athletic. You can follow him on Twitter, at Eno And if you subscribe to The Athletic, be sure to catch his podcast with Derek Van Riper, Rates and Barrels. It's pretty good, I have to admit. So because we went a little pitching heavy with Eno there, let's talk about some Pirates haters for a while. Let's start with someone that everyone loves to hate, Eric Gonzalez. I know that hating on him is the cool thing to do, but you have to give it to him because you look up today and he's batting 292 over his last 10 games. Uh, a couple doubles in there, four walks. And if you actually look at the defensive side of things, he seems to have calmed down a little bit, and right now he ranks eighth overall of 29 shortstops that are qualified right now in terms of defensive runs saved. I guess that's pretty good. I think that's about what you would expect. I said it a couple podcasts ago that unless you're – the Andrelton Simmons or uh, some other of these shortstops who are very clear-cut first-tier shortstops, you're not going to have a lot of comparative value against what's out there. Um, I know the Pirates fans see the errors early in the season, see kind of the weak at-bats, and don't quite realize that, but it is true. Um, He's brought up his weighted on-base average to 280 as of this writing, and if you look at the kind of pitches he's getting that correspond with that increase in Woba, even though it's still modest, He's seeing more fastballs over the last uh, six, seven games or so, and he's been doing what he can with them. So if you think about it, how can he get more fastballs? Well, that's simple. I think he could be better early in the count. I'm talking about at first pitch, at 1-0 or at 0-1. You know, if he gets behind or ahead after the first couple pitches. In those counts, again, first pitch, 1-0, 0-1, he has a combined strike, and what I mean by that on combining whiffs and called strikes here. A percentage of 31.9%. So, in those three counts, he gets a strike 31.9% of the time. So, what that tells me, maybe he's being a little too aggressive at first pitch, or perhaps he's trying to avoid getting behind further at 0-1, or he's being a little too aggressive at 1-0. Um, if he can get that to just a little bit better percentage, he might see more fastball counts, which might lead to, you guessed it, more fastballs, which clearly he agrees with. So, Listen, Gonzalez. I've said. I think this is at least the third time I've said it. He's never going to be confused for a Freddie Galvis or even a Jose Iglesias with a plus tool, but he has a path laid out for him towards respectability. Get to the fastball. Do what you can with it. It's not that hard. Now, starting Marte decided. This. This is rather. This really caught me by surprise last night. In an eventual win against Detroit last night, he decided Marte on his own, mind you to bunt with two on and no one out in the sixth inning of last night's eventual win. I think the Pirates were down three. Were up 3-2 to two at the time, and your number two hitter is deciding to bunt with two on and nobody out. Um, Quoted after the game, uh, as told to my DK Pittsburgh Sports teammate, John Parado, he wanted to do something, and I'm paraphrasing, he wanted to do something good for the club because he has been struggling so much. That's how bad he's struggling. And of course, he did have the eventual winning home run in the 10th inning last night, so there was that. But how bad has he been struggling? It's not pretty. Uh, He has an 84.8 mile per hour average exit velocity right now, and his strikeout rate, which he worked so hard to get under 20% over the past four years, is up to 20, actually 20% dead even right now. The good news, though, is that his expected stats continue to point towards good things to come. He's got an x woba of 339 and expected slugging x slug of 477. So even though the totality of the average exit velocity isn't that great, there's some there's some bad balls in there that give you hope that maybe he's going to turn around quicker rather than later and be the run producer that a number two hitter should be. But one big hole that he might want to plug is off speed pitches. Right now, uh, Marte is seeing. About the same amount percentage-wise of off-speed pitches this year compared to last. This year, seeing off-speed 10.5%. Last year, 11.1%. But his whiff percentage on these is way up. 53.3% whiff on off-speed this year, as opposed to 33.8% whiff on off-speed last year. Uh, above, no, I'm sure of this above anything else. This will even out with sample size, but it's definitely something to watch. So, he's... With that home run last night, you can make an argument that maybe he's going to start breaking out. I put out a poll on Twitter today. Follow me there at J Rollis and PGH. I'd love to talk Pirates and baseball with you there. Asking which Pirates hitters the public thinks will fully break out first. Marte was an option, but so was San Francisco Cervelli. And the Pirates, too, of course, need him to provide some offense, but he is in many ways the mirror image of Marte. It's even worse. Cervelli also is hitting the ball weekly. 84.6 miles per hour average exit velocity on the season. But his expected stats are much, much worse. He has an xwoba XW of 224, and that doesn't look pretty, especially up against an X-slug of 250. His walk his walk rate is way down, 7.1% compared to 12.6% last season. So if you think about those classic Cervelli seasons, even when he wasn't producing with power or wasn't driving runs in, he was still getting on base, and that's failing him now. At this moment, so when you struggle, you struggle, apparently, with Pirates hitters. Uh, The most concerning thing that I see for Cervelli is that he is struggling against fastballs. Opposing pitchers have a put-away rate against Cervelli on the fastball of 21.2%, meaning 21.2% of putaways against Cervelli come on the fastball. That's up from 10.7% last year. So if you're in such a bad way with a bat that pitchers can just sit back and attack you at will, shove fastballs down your throat, you're going to have a bad time. So I'm not exactly sure what the answer is for him right now. You know, he, like I said, he can always fall back on those on-base skills, which he has such a good reputation of. But I'm tempted to chalk this up to sample size. We'll have to see. You know, I do wonder if the club can better manage his workload once Diaz is back with a big club. Uh Cerville's already appeared in 15 games and uh, 111.1 innings behind the plate already. Um you know, Last year, the Pirates had like a two-thirds Cervelli, one-third Diaz rotation. That's, that's rough numbers. I have to imagine that if all things were were perfect and Diaz was healthy, that number would be even closer to 50-50. Maybe that'll help, um, but we're only going to find out once Diaz completes his rehab and gets up here. So just a couple quick thoughts on Pirates hitters there, and now we're going to move on to the Up and Running hotline, brought to you by Up and Running. Visit their stores in Pittsburgh or Evansburg, and get ready for that half marathon or that full marathon that you're even working for towards, or just get a better fitting walking or running shoe. It was founded by a Brooks Hansen runner, and up and running is the premier destination for runners of all ability. Visit runpa.com for more details. First text comes from Reg Miller, who writes, is Chad Cool not an option at all this year, as in September at the earliest? And what about Mitch Keller? Barring an injury to a starter, does he just stay in AAA all year? You know, going into the season, I would have thought it would be nice to see what Chad Cool can bring to the bullpen later in the year, and he will still be an option there much later in the year, and we're talking much later. Um, but if you look at the bullpen right now, unless Rich Rodriguez completely continues to fall apart, I don't I don't see any glaring need to add to this bullpen. And yes, I'm still faithful that Keonikela will figure it out, and the starting rotation certainly is not in need of any help right now. So I don't really see an obvious spot for Cool right now. If things just stay, you know, status quo, or even you know this rotation, like we talked about with Eno, might regress a little bit. But you know, it's not going to be objectively bad. I really don't think throughout the year. So and there's some flexibility there with Lyles possibly going to the bullpen if he breaks down as a starter. You have a ton of different things you can do. A lot of talent. So I don't really think there's a glaring need for Cool right now. I think it's going to be an interesting storyline to watch next year as his stuff kind of comes back. We'll see what kind of pitcher he's going to be post Tommy John surgery. Maybe he'll end up being a Nick Birdie who kept his stuff throughout. Uh, maybe, you know, Cool can pare down his offerings and just be a fastball slider pitcher in the vein of Birdie. We'll have to see, but I don't think there's any glaring need right now. And a lot of that rationale also explains why I think Keller is pretty much fated to stay in AAA for the entire year. And that's the right call. It really is. I think Keller has, you know, taken a little bit of a step back in his development. Um, the results just aren't there just now, right now, in AAA. So I think keeping him in AAA for at least the vast majority of the season would be the right call, unless this, the Pirates have a serious rash of injuries. And that's what it'll take. And it's going to take more than one injury for Keller to be seen in the majors this year, not just one injury. Next up is Rob, who asks, hey, Jason. Hey, Rob. Since Polanco just started his rehab assignment in Indy, how many games do you think he'll need before he's ready to come back? You know, it's hard for me to answer that, not seeing Polanco every day, not being an athletic trainer, not being on Todd Tomzak's staff. But I will say that the Pirates might be best served trying to get him up here during his during this quote soft spot in the schedule unquote. By that, I mean the Pirates will finish their 2 gamer with Detroit today. And then we'll face the Diamondbacks and Giants for I believe seven games, six or seven games. Don't have the schedule in front of me, but that's a very winnable slate. And after that, they go on a mini West Coast trip, uh, three of the Dodgers and two of the Rangers. So getting Polanco up during the next two series at some point might provide him some lower pressure at bats. Uh, you know, it's not a division game. It's not uh, team. It's not games against any teams that I would describe as fearsome. Very winnable games, like I said. So. You want to get him acclimated, now might be the time. Um, And that's also before the club gets back into division play. Now, of course, Polanco has just 12 at-bats with Indy thus far. I'm sure Neil Huntington and company have a certain number in mind. I would think at least 30 at-bats minimum are in order. So, unless he looks really good, and he has looked good in Indy so far, but unless he really looks good over the next couple games, I think maybe you're looking at maybe another week to 10 days at the minimum for Polanco to come up to the majors. Last one here is from Chelsea who says Colin Moran should start over Young Ho Gong. Prove me wrong. Well that's kind of easy to do that, Chelsea, even though Moran has stolen some headlines and some highlights, he too has gone hitless in three of the seven games in which he started, and two others of the game two others of those seven games, excuse me, were one hit affairs. So it's not like he's knocking the cover off the ball. I love what he's done this year, changing his stance very slightly and not chasing pitches getting his pitch to hit and doing something with it, just like Jacob Cruz and Rick Eckstein want Pirates hitters to do, but highlights and home opener Heroics' aside, I still think that Gong and Moran are neck and neck here right now. Uh, Yes, Gong has the edge defensively, made a great play last night, so my suggestion is why not try what I'm going to call a platoon plus, which by that I mean a true platoon plus maybe giving Moran one extra start per week. Uh, See how that goes. See who might distinguish themselves further. Again, Gong plays excellent defense and hit a home run last night. Maybe he's starting to turn a corner. But that's my lukewarm take. Right now, I don't think either has really completely, utterly, without a doubt, earned an everyday starting job. I want to thank you guys for listening to the Cast. Your support means the world to us as we build this thing up. Uh, Next week on the show, I'll have Joe Rivera from Sporting News, a very... Uh, well-known uh, baseball writer, part of the BBWAA, Baseball Writers Association of America. Always has unique takes. Looking forward to our conversation with him. The best way that you can help our show is to tell a friend. If you have a Pirates fan or now, like I said at the top, a Penguins fan who now must find some other sport to fill their days and nights, tell them about the show. Um, we record twice a week. We have the main buckle cast show plus um, Josh Taylor's table setter that comes out every Monday. So, We're also looking to do a few more different things throughout the year, so we would like to have as many people as possible hear those things. So you can follow me on Twitter at jrollsonpgh, and I'll have all the subscribe info for the show there. Subscribing is the best way to get our show because you'll get the latest episodes automatically and oftentimes before I send them out to the general public. So it's a nice little perk there for you. If you really like the show and would like to support us with a small monthly amount, um, please check the link in your show notes on your podcast app of choice right below the uh, the show icon there, and you'll have a link there where you can support us for as little as $1 a month. It's really simple. Thanks, have a great week, we'll talk to you then.